two great wings of the Dharma are wisdom and compassion. Without wisdom, we may have compassion for the suffering of beings, but we won't deeply understand the causes of that suffering, and so very often will not know the appropriate remedy, even though we're moved to respond. Without compassion, we may have insight, we may have wisdom into the situation, but without the compassion, we're not motivated to act. And so in our practice, in our life practice, we're really developing these two great wings, wisdom and compassion working together. Compassion, as has been talked about in these last weeks, is that particular feeling which is moved to alleviate the suffering in others, in ourselves. It's the natural response of an open heart to a situation of suffering. It's very much or closely allied to the quality of metta, only it is particularly directed towards those in pain. One question that can come up for us, especially in this kind of long retreat, how is it that sitting and walking, the development of mindfulness, noting the breath, what does all this have to do with the development of compassion? How is it strengthening that responsiveness of our heart? What does it have to do with that feeling which was very beautifully described by the Zen poet Ryokan? He said, oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. There's a wonderful image there, you know, of just embracing all beings with this feeling of care, with this feeling of compassion. What opens us to this is our understanding and our proximity to suffering. The Buddha talked of proximity to suffering as being the cause for compassion to arise. So where do we find suffering? How far do we have to look? <laughs> when we begin to look, we, it is pervasive. We see it in so many domains, you know, within ourselves, in the world. There's the suffering in the political arenas, in social, just injustice, in poverty, in hunger. 
his suffering, intense suffering, in religious arenas. Now, how many wars have been fought over different religious beliefs? And you think, what is going on in people's minds? But it happens again and again and again. It's not, it's not a rare event. You know, and even when we live on an island of relative peace and relative security and relative well-being, still there are aspects of suffering which touch each one of us. And there's the suffering of the body, which inevitably is getting older, is going towards death. This is true for every one of us. You know, we each at different times get sick, get weak, get enfeebled. Process of being sick, of dying. This is all a connection to the suffering that's so real in the world. And even when our body has a temporary respite you know, from the travails of growing old, there's the tremendous range of suffering in the mind. You all have probably become quite expert you know, in the possibilities. There's discontent, there's boredom, there's jealousy, there's anger, there's hatred, there's envy, there's fear, there's frustration, there's paranoia. And there's a long, long, long list. But there are so many interesting things to learn from our openness to the suffering that's there. One of the things we can learn and to see in our experience is that when we think or when we conceive of suffering as being an individual problem, either our own or somebody else's, then the response of holding it in that context is one of pity, either self-pity or pity for another. When we understand that suffering is not an individual problem, that suffering is a universal condition, and when we deeply feel this or open to it, recognize it, that's when our response to the suffering goes from being one of pity to one of compassion. Now, these are two very different feelings, because in the feeling of pity, there's really a quality of separation, of distance. And in the feeling of compassion, there is that sense of oneness, of connectedness. So it's helpful to recognize and to see the different states that are there and what it is that's underneath them, what conditions each of those states. But here we come up against sort of an interesting paradox. If proximity to suffering is the cause of compassion, and compassion is so pervasive in the world, why isn't the world more a more compassionate place? 
And I think when we look at our own experience, we can really discover what it is that happens. Because when we look at our own experience of pain and suffering, what we find is that even though we may want to be open to it, very often we're not. Very often we're close to it, we're defended against it, we deny it, we push it away. You know, you've had a lot of experience now in seeing this very pattern in relation to physical pain and the many different ways we can relate to pain. Just the pain of the back hurting or the knees or some kind of unpleasant sensation in the body. The sidelong glances. <laughs> you know, we're watching the breath and the pain is there, but we don't really want to feel it. We don't want to be with it. We don't want to be hassled by it. And so we kind of give it a quick glance and hope it'll go away. You know, or we're watching it with an agenda. You know, we're, we're turning our attention to it, but the agenda in our mind is that it should go away. That also is not opening to it. It's not a response of compassion. This is a very delicate situation. And it requires a very careful attention because many times we may be unaware that we're actually resisting the unpleasant feelings. Now, we could be feeling pain in the body and actually think that we're being open, we're being aware, we're being mindful. Do a double check. You know, just check again. Because so often I've seen in myself, I can be watching pain and it's only after some time that I realize my body is contracted. My body has tensed in response to it, even as I'm noting it, even as I'm being with it. So it's so subtle, the ways in which we close off. We do this perhaps even more strongly with unpleasant emotions, unpleasant feelings. There are certain ones, certain feelings in each of us that for whatever reason of conditioning or habit are not acceptable to us. The shadow side, things we are unwilling or unable to open to at a particular time. Maybe it's feelings of fear or feelings of insecurity, or feeling unworthy, or feeling whatever. We each have our own particular conditioning. It's been very instructive to see how much of our life is spent constructing a pattern of being 
so that we avoid having to feel certain things. How much of what we do in our lives is so we don't feel bored or lonely? I mean, the whole economy is driven by that. Our whole culture <laughs> you know, is so geared to entertainment. Maybe if we even good entertainment. <laughs> but no, it's just, it's just often simply to zone out so we don't have to feel certain things, so we don't have to feel lonely or bored or whatever it is. It is much simpler simply to feel the feeling. It is, because as you know now, you know, you've been watching these for months, they come and they go. They are unpleasant, that's true. But that's okay. Can we open, can we feel the unpleasant emotions just like we feel the unpleasant physical sensations? Really open, really be accepting, not simply tolerating. Our unwillingness, the habit of our unwillingness, simply to feel these feelings, keeps us continually reaching out. It keeps feeding that desire for some alternative, whether it's food or entertainment or whatever, some distraction or other. On retreat, the options are limited, but that doesn't really stop the mind. <laughs> you know, how many times you're just lost in thoughts, lost in fantasies, lost in planning, whatever. And really what's happening it's the mind strategy for not opening to restlessness, not opening to pain, not opening to sadness, whatever may be there. You might check at times when the mind is really running, you know, when it's just, it seems caught in this endless uh, pattern of thoughts of whatever kind. Just check underneath, see, is there something going on? some emotional state that the mind is resisting. At these times when we're closed off, whether in very obvious ways or very subtle ways, at those times we're not coming from a place of compassion. Because compassion is predicated on our ability to feel the suffering. So there's some very powerful transformation of understanding that's happening here. Now we talk about self-acceptance as being the foundation <clears throat> for an inner harmony, an inner, an inner peace. <clears throat> but what self-acceptance means, what it implies, is that we're willing to see it all, we're willing to be with it all, we're willing to open to it all. There was a 10th century Japanese woman poet 
who express this so simply and so beautifully. She wrote, her name was Izumi. She wrote, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Something very powerful about that. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So in meditation practice, in our practice, what we're doing is learning how not to leave anything out. It's finding the balance particularly with the whole range of emotions and feelings that come, not pushing away, not denying, not avoiding, on the one side, and on the other side, not wallowing, not getting lost in, rather resting in the simple awareness. One time in my practice, I was going through a rather protracted uh, onslaught of fear. And there was some particular thing that triggered it. And I worked with it on retreat, but then it was really coming up a lot for me in my life. And I was creating this huge story you know, about being so fearful, and I was such a fearful person, and I just envisioned you know, the next 25 years of therapy and practice and to kind of untie it all. And Sharon and I were teaching in Texas. We were teaching a retreat. And we were taking a walk after lunch. And I was going on and on about my fear and everything I'd have to do. And she just turned to me and she said, just in the most direct way, it's just a mind state. Those are words that, of course, I've said and heard (laughs) a million times. But you know when the moment is right and it goes in. Right, it's just a mind state. It's the fear which fears. It's the anger which is angry. It doesn't belong to anyone. And so just in that moment, right, it's just a mind state. And the whole big edifice that I had constructed, which was really an edifice of self, around that fear, the whole thing dissolved. doesn't mean that fear never comes again. But now, again, it's much like, it's just an arising emotion. It's okay. Let me feel this. It's another passing mind state. We don't have to create big stories or dramas around it. The more we work with interest and with care, with the difficult emotions that come up in our own practice and lives, and really work to understand how can we be free with this, how can we be open and actually feel them from a place of compassion, 
our very struggle with all this strengthens the compassion that we have for ourselves and also for others when we see them going through the same process. So it's tremendously useful. The, the fact that it may be difficult to do at different times and we have to work it, we have to work our understanding, that's not a problem. Because it helps us see the commonality of the human condition. Sometimes when I look back on my path of practice, I really feel that my particular path has been to fall into every trap along the way. (laughs) When I look back over all the years, and I'm sure there's a few more probably still to come, but it's been really helpful. Because that's how we learn. It's not no longer kind of secondary, secondary knowledge from working with all of these things. And all the times we get caught and lost and trapped and we fall down, our own efforts at understanding is what brings the wisdom. It brings the compassion. So it's to see how we close off to suffering in the body, how we close off to suffering in the emotional realm. We can also close off, and often do, to the suffering of other people and situations. I found this most striking when we're with people who might have quite unpleasant behavior patterns you know, that we find abrasive or obnoxious or difficult. And it's very interesting to watch the difference between the mind which is reacting to the behavior and the mind which is open to the suffering which is causing the behavior. There is an amazing shift in our relationship. Because when we're reacting to the behavior, it's like we're putting up this defensive wall. We don't want to feel that suffering. And so we put up some kind of wall of defensiveness, of contraction to keep it out. In that very situation, when somebody is driving us crazy, just to stop for a minute, to kind of drop down, And really to open our eyes. Can we see what is going on? Not the behavior, which is just a symptom. Can we see the suffering that's there? And when we do, when we relate on that level, it's quite amazing how immediate is the change in our relationship. The compassion is right there from our openness, our willingness to see, to feel, to be aware of that person's suffering. But we need to change our habit patterns. Now, in all of our practice, 
one way of describing it or understanding what we're doing is the practice of letting things in. Letting in the sensations, whatever they may be, letting in the emotions, the mind states, the feelings, letting in the suffering in other people, letting in the suffering of the world. So another Japanese poet, uh, Isa, he was, he was a Zen master poet who had a lot of suffering in his life. So it's a long story, but he really knew this from his experience. But he wrote, in the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. And again, for me, that just conveys the very same feeling. In the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. Can we live like that? What keeps us from opening? What keeps us from opening to the suffering that presents itself so often in our own experience, in the world? We don't open because of ignorance, because of a fundamental and basic ignorance. That is an ignoring of the true nature of phenomena, the true nature of how things are. And right here is the connection between awareness and compassion. When we ignore the the true nature of phenomena, of how things are happening, we often get seduced by the belief that happiness lies, that our happiness lies in the experience, the acquisition of more and more pleasurable feelings. This is the basic understanding that drives the world. This is not a minority view. Many lives, most of our lives, are based on this belief. You know, that if I get more and more pleasurable feelings, I'll be happy. That this is where my happiness uh, is to be found. You could think of desire or craving. The force of desire or craving is this thirst for pleasure. That's what desire is. It's a thirsting for pleasurable feelings. One time I was teaching in South Africa. I'm a great cookie lover. I had these cookies. The name of the cookies were Eat Some More. (laughs) I thought, this is perfect. (laughs) Eat some more. Some more, some more, some more. And that's what they call them. They call them s'mores. <laughs> but 
Well, what's the effect of this, of this ignorance? The effect of it is that not only does it feed our desire system, when we're, when we're living in this belief, in this ignorance, that happiness will come from more and more pleasurable feelings, not only does it feed our desire, but it also feeds our resistance to feeling what's unpleasant. I mean, it's so obvious. If we think that, that pleasant things will make us happy, obviously we think that unpleasant things are something to be avoided. And so we live our lives. We try to construct our lives to avoid unpleasant feelings. The consequence of this is that as we close ourselves to the feeling of unpleasant experience, whether sensations or emotions or situations in the world, as we close ourselves to them, we also close ourselves to the wellspring of compassion. And what happens then is something that's very subtle. As we close ourselves to the wellspring of compassion out of our belief that we should avoid unpleasant, painful things, the compassion turns into its near enemy, which is sorrow. So instead of responding with compassion to suffering, we react with sorrow. And sorrow has aversion in it. We have aversion to the suffering. Very different than compassion. And as we all know, when there's strong sorrow in the mind, there are often feelings of despair or hopelessness or anger. All of this comes out of that basic ignorance. People sometimes have the idea that aversion to suffering is actually good because it's the energy which motivates us to take action. You know, and a lot of people out in the world who are working in good causes to alleviate suffering are being fueled by anger, fueled by aversion. One of the things that is happening now, and I've been working a little bit uh, with environmental activists, it's becoming clear in that domain as well as in many others that it doesn't work. It's not a sustaining energy. People get very burned out. Aversion to suffering is not a skillful strategy because actually we're just creating more. So it's very interesting to begin to see the difference between sorrow and compassion. When we see this clearly, 
we begin to see how compassion is the natural response of a heart that's open, that's willing to be with the suffering. Just, I'm sure you all have many experiences of this. One that stands out in my mind because it was just so immediate. In my time in India, one of the most obvious and, and immediate kinds of suffering that uh, is just there all the time, uh, the situation of the many dogs that are around. Because there they're not, or most are not pets. And so you see these dogs often completely without fur, you know, just totally uh, being devoured by mange in the most pitiful condition. And mostly the way people respond to them is just, you know, throwing stones at them. And especially somebody growing up in this culture where <laughs> dogs are well taken care of. It was so striking, and it was very striking just to notice the range of response in my mind. Because sometimes I could see my mind, you know, I'd be sitting in a chai shop, a tea shop, having tea, and there'd be all these really pitiful dogs there. But I just wanted to enjoy my tea. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> go away. <laughs> I didn't want to open to it. I didn't want to see it. And I could just watch my mind create that little world. And at other times, when I really just stopped and looked, stopped and let it in, I didn't have to think about compassionate action. You know, when I let it in, the response was immediate. It was natural. It was spontaneous. Now, see if you feed the dog instead of shooing it away. It's just a little example, but the difference between defending ourselves and letting it in is the difference between aversion and compassion. Wisdom replaces ignorance when we realize that lasting happiness does not come from simply acquiring more and more pleasant feelings. That happiness doesn't come from reaching out. It comes from letting go. That's a basic shift in the way we relate to experience, the way we relate to life. That happiness comes from opening to the moment, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it doesn't matter. That a much more genuine peace and happiness comes from opening to what's there, rather than a grasping at or pushing away. This transformation of understanding, when wisdom replaces ignorance, in our understanding of happiness, it frees the energy of compassion within us. Because we're no longer busy trying to avoid. We're no longer so busy 
trying to protect. We're just there. We're open. Let me be with what's here. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's painful. So a question for us, and it's really a profound question for each one of us, can we do this? Is it something more than a nice idea? Can we live with this inclusiveness that compassion demands, where we're letting it all in? The ability to open to all the aspects of ourselves, the ability to open to others, to the situation in the world, and to do it without self-pity and without fear and without anger. This is not a theoretical question. You know, it's not simply contemplating compassion as some noble state. Yes, we should really be compassionate. It has to do with how we're living our lives and sometimes how we're living them in the most difficult circumstances, the most trying circumstances. That's the test for us. Some time ago, I mentioned this Tibetan doctor who had been captured by the Chinese communists. There was an article written about him in the 1989 uh, Harvard Medical Journal. His name was Tenzin Chodruk. He was chief physician to the Dalai Lama, and he was imprisoned for 21 years And he said that for 17 of those years, his life daily was threatened. It was endangered, undergoing really the most horrendous kinds of physical and mental tortures. This is 17 years on a daily basis. In the article about him, there was an interview. He was released, finally. And he's talking about his experience and how he was able not only to deal with it, but to actually triumph in it. He talked about four points of understanding that were the basis of his triumph of the heart in this most incredibly difficult situation. It's clear that we may not all be like him, and that we may hopefully never have to face those kinds of circumstances. But the wisdom that he's pointing to is universal. It's not limited to him, and it's not limited to that situation.
What he does is point to that wisdom which makes possible the tremendous strength and power of compassion. So the first thing he talked about was understanding his situation in a larger context. And he mentioned something which the Dalai Lama talks about very often, of how one's enemy teaches us patience. Tenzing Chodrick was describing how even in this most horrendous condition, he felt that something useful was being gained because he put it in a bigger context. He felt that some human greatness was being accomplished. That's an extraordinary understanding to bring to a situation of that kind of suffering. I think for us, we can look in our lives, even in times of much less difficulty, much less suffering, are we asking ourselves what human greatness can be accomplished here? You're sitting in the hall and somebody's rustling around and making noise. What is your mind doing? Is it taking out the mental machine gun? <laughs> or is it asking, what can be gained here? What can be accomplished? What, what greatness can manifest? What greatness of mind? We can do this. It doesn't have to be in dramatic situations. This is the way we can begin to train ourselves. We can begin to live with this understanding. The second aspect of wisdom that he talked about, he said he understood that his enemy, this person, these guards who were torturing him, who were were human like himself. And that his enemies in this context also had within them the seeds of Buddhahood. He understood that these people, in their own way, were in as adverse circumstances as he was, because they were planting the seeds of their own inevitable and future suffering. He understood that they would be paying a fearsome price for their cruelty, for their ignorance. So again, even in the midst of tremendous suffering, he felt the commonality of our predicament. He was able to see, to understand, the universality of the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. 
And here it's interesting, he, through his understanding of the law of karma, that actions bring results. Instead of, instead of using that understanding as a vehicle of revenge in his mind, oh, they'll get theirs, that understanding was the vehicle of compassion. What inspires me about this is the application of it to our own lives. It is a tremendously inspiring story in itself, but how are we living? You know, in every time of difficulty, in every time of suffering, can we reflect on this? The third aspect of wisdom, which not only sustained him, but allowed him to grow, to accomplish human greatness, he said, he talked about remembering to let go of pride, to let go of self-righteousness. That's not so easy to do especially when we are being tormented in some way or other, and someone is doing something that is harming us, is hurting us, can we let go of that feeling of pride, of self-righteousness in that moment? That takes a tremendous willingness, openness, to be in that situation from a place of wisdom. Our enemy teaches us patience. What human greatness can be accomplished in this situation? And the fourth aspect of his wisdom was his understanding, and this is such a basic principle of Dharma, that hatred Hatred and vengeance towards one's enemy only brings about more hatred and vengeance. Hatred never ceases by hatred. It only ceases by love, by compassion. These are the understandings that we can reflect on you know, in our lives, in times of suffering, so that instead of compassion being some theoretical notion or some ideal which we create and then hope someday to get there, this is the way to actually make it a practice. putting the situation in a larger context. What can be gained from this? What greatness can be accomplished? Seeing the commonality of all participants, of understanding the law of karma as a vehicle of compassion, letting go of pride, letting go of self-righteousness, 
and understanding that hatred never ceases by hatred. As we do this, our capacity for compassion becomes tremendously strengthened. As an image of the perfection of this, when they talk about the Buddha and the life of the Buddha, it's said that when he awakened in the morning, he would survey the world with his eye of wisdom and with his net of compassion. He would, he would cast out his net of compassion over the world, see who was in the state of greater suffering, and go to that person to alleviate it. That's an amazing gesture. And what do we do when we wake up in the morning? <laughs> You know, what do we do in our lives? Do we, do we look to see, okay, where's the greatest suffering? Let me go there. Let me see what I can do. Do you see the tremendous potential? What's very important is to see that compassion is a practice. Because there will be many times when we're in a situation of suffering, either in ourselves or in situation outside of ourselves, where it's too much, it's overwhelming. We don't actually have the strength to open to it. And that's fine. We need to recognize and to be very honest about our limitations. There are times in our lives, in our practice, where we have to say, Psh, this is too much, I can't handle this. We need to back up, we need to close off at those times a bit, to retreat in order to gain the strength to again open. Now, so, so many spiritual disasters happen because of idealizing certain qualities and then thinking that somehow we should have them all perfected and then when we find that we don't become tremendously disillusioned either in ourselves or about others. It is all a path. But it's very helpful to have a sense of what the path actually is. So through awareness, we transform ignorance into wisdom. We begin to see that happiness does not come from more and more pleasant feelings. It comes from opening to what's there. As we open to what's there, we come closer to suffering. As we come closer to suffering, compassion flows quite naturally. There's this wonderful beauty or flowering of the practice. As you, know, you have been doing 
during the past weeks, there's also a specific compassion meditation. Or in a very specific way, we develop that quality. May you be free of suffering, dedicated to all classes of beings. From this feeling of greater compassion in ourselves, we then begin to express it through compassionate action in the world. It's not just a question of staying in this nice, comfortable meditation hall. May you be free of suffering. Not to minimize that, because that itself has tremendous power, but in our life in the world, it takes form. We actually express this feeling in the way we relate to others. There is no particular hierarchy or model for compassionate action. It's not that one way of doing it is the highest way or the noblest way. We are all individuals with our specific interests and capabilities and potentials, and we will each find our own way of expressing it. There are so many different skillful means. When we come to understand this feeling of compassion in ourselves, we see that walking on the path of awakening, walking on the path of enlightenment, is itself one of the greatest compassionate acts. Just sitting here and being with what's arising and walking and being with what's arising is an act of compassion because it connects us with the suffering that is there and with the root causes of that suffering. And so we practice both to alleviate that suffering in ourselves and to alleviate it in all beings. It's developing the two great wings of the Dharma. In every moment of awareness, we're developing the wings of compassion and the wings of wisdom. Let's sit for a few minutes. And as you said, see if you can bring the feeling, the sense, the spirit in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. To sit with that feeling of inclusion, with that feeling of openness, that feeling of compassion for whatever it is that's arising. Each sensation, each breath, each thought.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.